Hello, and thank you for joining the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 70, Mill Springs. The Wheel Turns, January 19, 1862. As we very briefly noted last time, the first six months of 1862 saw an almost unbroken string of Union military successes. Despite some Union pushback in 1861, broadly speaking, affairs had gone well, very well, for the Confederacy. They started the war at Fort Sumter, and were much more psychologically and materially prepared for war. As we've seen, many southern states raised and drilled large militias in anticipation of trouble well before any fighting. Many of these militias had strong pro-secession sympathies as well, and naturally fell into the ranks. Meanwhile, the Union scrambled to build up its forces, craft a war-winning strategy, and keep from collapsing in those early days. That the North did so is something of a miracle, because of course the bad news in the military sphere kept coming, from Bull Run to Bull's Bluff to Wilson's Creek. But that, of course, was hardly the whole story. Politically, the Union maintained the loyalty of the border states and regions, so that the Confederate victories merely bought time, while the Union commenced drilling an army hundreds and thousands strong. So too in Kentucky, by culture very Southern, yet also highly loyal to the Union. Here, instead of swamping the Unionist majority, the Confederate faction ultimately collapsed. Within a few months of Fort Sumter, Kentucky made its views clear and formally sided with one son of her sacred soil, Abraham Lincoln, over another, Jefferson Davis. Among other things, this erased a border zone for the Confederacy. As long as Kentucky remained neutral, the Union couldn't invade or otherwise pressure Tennessee. That front remained entirely quiet. Once that changed, it opened the way for Tennessee, and beyond it, the entire Lower South region. And it happened in large part because of Confederate actions. Seeing how Kentucky slowly, but deliberately, moved to align itself with the Union, Confederate General Leonidas Polk, also the Episcopal Bishop of Louisiana, advanced into Kentucky and occupied Columbus. He intended to block any advance along the Mississippi River. This he did, but at a terrible cost, for his actions guaranteed his worst fears. Kentucky's quiet Unionism burst forth, and the heart of the state at once beat in time with her northern sisters. Those Kentuckians whose desire for a slave nation outweighed their loyalty went south, among them a highly capable officer named Simon Bolivar Buckner, who had formerly led the state militia. With that, confrontation within Kentucky became inevitable. At Columbus, on the far western edge of the state, newly minted Brigadier General Grant launched a raid on some of the Confederate outposts on the Missouri side of the river. This succeeded, though he did not complete it by taking the prisoners he hoped once his green troops lost their heads. However, even after retreating that day, Grant preferred to wedge the Confederates out rather than assault this well-laid fortress, and so he did not plan a full-scale attack. But General Polk's advance into Kentucky sparked a string of similar movements all along southern Kentucky. In particular, out on the far eastern border of the state, Confederate Brigadier Felix Zolikoffer advanced well into Kentucky and occupied a place called Mill Springs. There is no specific reason, as we will see, to move on to this location. Zollicoffer merely wanted to advance where he could, and figured it was better to move up and keep an eye on the Union forces in Kentucky, rather than wait until they drove him back into Tennessee. But strictly speaking, that was his original task, watching the Cumberland Gap and preventing the Union from moving forces forward to relieve its many friends in East Tennessee. 
but as a purely defensive strategy, it might not work, and so Zolikoffer chose in advance. Yet there may have been an element of personal vanity involved. Zolikoffer put himself in the place where the action was, hoping to receive reinforcements and then to drive on and defeat the Union forces. This would have put the Union on the back foot in Tennessee, and give Zolikoffer a great deal of personal glory. Yet Zolikoffer greatly underestimated the difficulty of obtaining needed supplies in his advanced position. Besides, the Confederate service in the West had to divvy up an extremely limited quantity of arms. It could not equip all its recruits as it was, and it had far too few to match the Union's numbers. We will return momentarily to discuss the specifics of Zolikoffer's movements. Meanwhile, in the heart of central Kentucky as all this is going on, the Virginia-born but Union-loyal George Thomas had begun recruiting and drilling as well. In fact, this effort had begun not long after Fort Sumter. But originally, Union-loyal Kentuckians crossed the river at Louisville or perhaps Cincinnati and joined up there instead. Now everyone discarded the polite fiction, and the American flag waved proudly over the state. And this, in fact, became the genesis of the Battle of Mill Springs. Zollicoffer's arrogance, or courage, as you may decide it, led him to confront a powerful and growing Union force in the heart of its power. And at that moment, things were changing for the Confederate command structure as well. Among other things, Jefferson Davis appointed Albert Sidney Johnston to lead the effort in the West, which in his case mostly meant the Tennessee-Kentucky frontier. Albert Sidney Johnston wound up taking command two days after Bishop General Polk's advance, and then had to deal with the results whether he willed it or no. Since there was no fixing the political problems, he embraced the military advantages while available. Among other things, he assigned Major General George Crittenden to head up control of the military district of East Tennessee. As with his predecessors, Crittenden made the mistake of believing the Mountaineers easily swayed from Unionism. And then General Zolikoffer, who reported to him nominally, upped stakes and set out for Kentucky. But not from Bill Springs, at least not right away. In October of 1861, Zolikoffer ran up against Camp Wildcat, more or less right on the path from the Cumberland Gap directly north to Cincinnati, Ohio. Realizing he couldn't fight it out with little more than a wild trail to supply him, Zolikoffer fell back to Tennessee. Then, in November, he advanced again and moved farther west, this time occupying Little Mill Springs. This partly uncovered East Tennessee, because Mill Springs lay almost as close to Nashville as Knoxville but the Union would not likely advance into the hills without at least dealing a blow to Zollicoffer. Unfortunately, the Union meant to do exactly that. Although during his tenure in command, General William Tecumseh Sherman had hesitated to march, he had lately been replaced. General Don Carlos Buell now commanded in this theater. He also shied from battle, but the Lincoln administration had got tired of this business of letting the Confederates push them around. President Lincoln and the War Department wanted Union boys to push back. So George Thomas received fresh orders, march on Mill Springs, and do something about Zollicoffer if he could. George H. Thomas was something of an unusual man, in part because he was really very ordinary. He never quite seemed to stand out in any way. Though his manners were impeccable if a bit stiff, he was so straightforward that no one ever faulted his honesty. And, though as mentioned a born Virginian, he took his oath of loyalty to the country that made him an officer completely seriously. He led men bull run, and received a promotion for his cool and effective conduct. 
Now, General Thomas had never exactly been known for his speed, and he even walked with a slow, stiff gait owing to a back injury from his military service out west. As a commander, he quickly earned a reputation for delayed movements, but also for meticulous preparation and complete mastery over his command. If his soldiers rarely ran forward, they also never ran backwards. In early January, General Thomas began his march on Mill Springs. This he made with only 4,000 men as opposed to Zollicoffer's 5,000. But the Union boys were well-drilled, well-equipped, and more to the point had Thomas leading them. Now, General Felix K. Zollicoffer was perhaps an unwise choice for this command. Though he had a track record of success in his personal career, he had very little fighting experience and had primarily made his living as an editor of several newspapers. Zollicoffer originally opposed secession, but like many Tennessee men, he turned to support the Confederacy once the state went through with it. Though he showed real talents for military organization, he had never led men to battle and could hardly be called a professional. And hence, when he arrived at Mill Springs, Zollicoffer made a key error. While originally making camp on the south bank of the Cumberland River, which would have sheltered and protected his command, Zollicoffer then moved his troops to the north side instead. The problem lay in the fact that this left Zollicoffer's force with no natural barriers to protect himself from a sudden attack. On the contrary, if the Confederates fell back, they'd get pushed up to the river itself and might face complete destruction. General Crittenden realized this, and he ordered Zollicoffer to return to the south bank. But Crittenden wasn't on site to carry out those orders. Instead, Zollicoffer delayed because he just didn't see the need and really didn't want the trouble. He had only a small river steamer which could carry troops and material across the swollen muddy creek, but it would be slow going in cold weather. When Crittenden arrived in person and realized that nothing had been done, it was already too late, for George Thomas had arrived too. Making the best of a bad situation, Crittenden took command of Zollicoffer's force. At the moment, General Crittenden did have more troops available, yet they were all the way back in Tennessee and couldn't possibly have joined the battle unless General Thomas sat around and decided to wait a week, or maybe two. But that said, Crittenden still had 6,000 men on hand, 1,500 or so more than Thomas, so he resolved to attack. Indeed, Crittenden recognized he could not easily retreat without risking the command anyway, because the river actually curved around from the northeast. This partly cut off the location from the roads to East Tennessee, and was exactly why Crittenden ordered Zollicoffer to fall back originally. Any advancing Federal force would, in effect, walk right in between the Confederates and their line of supply or retreat. And with limited river transportation, the Confederates could easily find themselves under siege with no escape. Then General Thomas arrived and did exactly what Crittenden feared. General Thomas, generally of the opinion that a strong defensive line formed the foundation of offensive action, had set up exactly that at Logan's Crossroads. This lay about 10 miles north from the Confederate camp. This more or less barred the Confederates from moving in nearly any direction, unless they opted to go swimming. And so, at midnight on January 18, 1862, General Crittenden set out with his force intending to attack Thomas at first light. In theory, such a daring nighttime march followed by an early attack would knock the Federals down and send them scrambling back. Perhaps it might even open the way through central Kentucky. 
but Crittenden had, as he knew, some problems. His troops lacked experience and would have to attack after a long winter march. Their arms were not the best, and the battle plan necessarily kept to very simple maneuvers, more or less marching up the road with a plan to spread out just before the attack. Crittenden just couldn't risk anything more complicated under the circumstances. The march went about as expected, which is to say, not well at all. This was winter. Sleet fell all around the Confederate soldiers, chilling them right to the bone. They marched through roads turned to half-frozen mud. By the time the southern troops arrived at the crossroads, they had already exhausted much of their strength. Yet there was nothing for it but to attack anyway. The hard march, though, had taken much of the energy out of the Confederate assault, even before it began. But Thomas had also carefully prepared, by insisting on a strong picket guard. He knew the Confederates might try such an attack. And so the Battle of Mill Springs became a complete fiasco. The already tired Confederate soldiers failed to surprise the watchful Federals, who got into a line of battle fresh and ready for the fight. In fact, General Thomas did not withdraw to his camp, but instead met the Confederates just south. The Federals more or less had the Confederates bottled up, too, where the road passed between two creeks. This hampered their movements and prevented them from overlapping the Federal line quickly with superior numbers. Initially, the 10th Indiana Infantry held the road, with the 4th Kentucky Cavalry fighting dismounted to their left. These soldiers initially fell back a short ways, giving the impression of a retreat. But they were only falling back to a better position. Conveniently, the troops took advantage of a fence to set their lines, and then blasted anyone who tried to cross the open ground in their front. While the Confederates had the weight of numbers, they were now somewhat stuck and unable to push the Federals back any farther, at least not quickly. In the cold and damp, many of the Southern soldiers discovered their outdated muskets refused to fire. The Confederate artillery might have made its firepower known at this moment, but they took a position atop a small bluff to the rear. Although a good firing location, it prevented them from bringing all their strength to the fight. But there wasn't much room to maneuver anyhow, and trying to wedge the artillery in might have slowed the weight of the attack, too. Nonetheless, Grittenden kept pushing. Had these Federal troops on the field been all there was, they would inevitably have found themselves forced back. General Zolikoffer, in command of the Confederate right flank, was deploying more and more of his soldiers to get around the Federals. With just one determined push now, they'd gotten their ranks aligned and perhaps it would work. Whatever his deficiencies in military knowledge, Zolikoffer had the confidence of his soldiers and energy on the battlefield. And so he put his soldiers in motion and began to hammer the 4th Kentucky. As dismounted cavalry, they lacked the firepower of an infantry regiment. But it was not to be. General Thomas had already set his entire command moving into the battle and reinforcements arrived to stabilize the existing line, even as the rest of the force moved to hit the Confederates from the flanks, exactly where Zolikoffer tried to deploy. But Zolikoffer would not live to see the defeat. He went down when he tried to order men from the 4th Kentucky, believing they were his own soldiers. Easily seen himself because he was wearing a white coat to ward off the rain, Zolikoffer rode forward to ascertain the full situation, and then got shot when he turned around. This caused confusion in the Confederate ranks, as under battlefield conditions it would take time for officers to sort out who was in command of what. Plus, it rarely helps morale when men see a general get killed. Still, the Confederates massed for another attack. But it was not to be. 
The full weight of the Union force arrived even as the Confederate morale lost strength. The 2nd Tennessee and 12th Kentucky Infantry flanked the Confederate force from the northeast and started shooting down the length of a ravine that previously sheltered them. Already shaken by exhaustion, bloody repulses, and the loss of their commander, the Confederates there retreated. Then, on the Union right flank, the 9th Ohio fell in line, threatening to cut off the road to Mill Springs with a bayonet charge that drove the Confederates back. Enough was enough, and the Confederates no longer had any fight left. They broke and ran, most running right past the batteries on the bluff and heading for Mill Springs, winter or no. General Crittenden was beat, and he knew it, but he formed a desperate last stand behind those batteries. This bought time for his command to escape, and Thomas declined to attack into the teeth of those guns. Although the Confederate force lost most of its order, it did manage to flee mostly intact back to Mill Springs, with Thomas hot on their heels. When Thomas arrived at the Confederate camp, however, he may have made a key mistake, though he could not have known it at the time. Instead of assaulting immediately, Thomas occupied a good position and cut off Crittenden's command, with artillery stationed above, on some heights, to prevent them from escaping across the river. But as night fell, the Confederates contrived to perform exactly that feat of escape, going desperately across via their sole paddle steamer. They accomplished this in the dead of night, where the artillery could not blast them. It took six agonizing hours, but the Confederates more or less managed to escape. Most of them, anyway. Union sources report finding hundreds of bodies of those who tried to swim and were swept away downriver. Frankly, those who swam must have been truly desperate. It would have been a bad idea given the currents even in summer, and it was now January. And in the process, the Confederates discarded all their horses and artillery and supplies. Still, though, most of the men managed to cross the river anyway, and just in time. At first light, the Federal guns opened up and quickly punched a hole clear through the steamer. The Confederates then burned it to prevent the Federals from capturing it. While Crittenden escaped with his command, that was about all he had gotten. Apart from the artillery and horses, he could not even take the tents or really any of the equipment. Many soldiers had left even their muskets behind too, rendering his force entirely useless for the time. They retreated and did not stop until they arrived all the way in Murfreesboro and would need substantial refit and re-equipment. But that wasn't all Crittenden left behind on the battlefield, though. Zolikoffer had largely been the one responsible for the failed battle. His mistakes made the fight necessary, even though Thomas's meticulous preparation actually won it for the Federals. But Zolikoffer had the good foresight to die on the battlefield. The press had a field day with their new hero martyr, and that made Zolikoffer more or less untouchable. So there was only one person left to take a blame. Hence it turns out that Crittenden left his reputation on the battlefield, and he could never recover it. He had tried to avoid Zolikoffer's mistakes, and it turns out, but there was no help for it now. Crittenden has done the best he could leading troops into an offensive fight, and it had just not been enough. In response, Crittenden lost his command over East Tennessee, and within two months found himself placed under arrest, ostensibly for drunkenness. True or not, he eventually declined to fight under Braxton Bragg, which actually placed him in pretty good company as far as the war goes, and then served as a staff officer in a quiet capacity on a quiet front in West Virginia. George Thomas, by contrast, discovered his reputation at Mill Springs. He quickly received promotion to Major General, although he could not continue his advance. 
But his victory paved the way for Buell's march on Nashville in the coming months. In fact, following Mill Springs, the Confederates had very little in either central or east Tennessee, and only the difficulty of moving in winter prevented the Union from crumpling the Confederate line there and then. There's an additional irony to this as well. At Mill Springs, the Union discovered that winning felt really good, and it was George Thomas who shepherded loyal men to that victory. It was the first completely unambiguous favorable result, where no one could deny the aftermath. Almost three years later, in the not terribly distant town of Franklin, Thomas would once again crush Confederate force which foolishly attacked in the dead of winter. That would be, very nearly, the last true battle of the war. And in both cases, the survivors desperately streamed southward, leaving so much of their heavy equipment behind, and also leaving behind the reputation of another Confederate general in their wake. Now, the direct casualties of Mill Springs, also called more accurately the Battle of Logan's Crossroads, remained fairly light by Civil War standards. The Union lost 40 dead of 4,000, plus another 200 wounded. Meanwhile, the Confederates reported 125 dead and 300 wounded, plus another 100 missing. However, that doesn't necessarily take into account everyone left behind or lost in the crossing over the Cumberland River. We can also probably guess that more deserted on the road back to Tennessee. So it was, though, that a giant hole had just gotten punched through the Confederate cordon protecting their western flank. And far worse, General Grant would soon shatter that line entirely and force an entire army to surrender. The war had only just begun. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.